Hey, hi, hello, welcome to Smoke Show. This is Claire, um, and today we're going to be talking about Woodstock 99. <laughs> we're also going to be talking about Woodstock 69 a little bit, because I think you can't really talk about one without the other, because Woodstock as a brand is really... Uh, what I want to take a look at, and also just everything that went into the miracle that was the original Woodstock and everything that didn't happen. And before we get into anything, I just want to give a content warning, like right up front, that this episode will absolutely be discussing sexual assault, rape, and death. Um, those are things that happened in abundance at Woodstock 99. And I need to talk about them because the documentaries that I watched don't talk about them enough at all. And I don't want to like, I'm obviously not going to try to describe anything graphically or anything like that, but I just want to give a content warning. Take care of yourself if that's subject matter that is just not something you want to listen to please don't feel obligated to listen to this. I think there is a weird thing happening where because a lot of media is coming out about really upsetting topics, sometimes we feel it's like a personal responsibility to know what's going on or know what's being said. And I just think that like we can all take as many breaks as we ever need to from learning about upsetting content. It is okay if you want to spend a week not reading the news. That's fine. You reading the news is actually not what's keeping it going every single day. And like, it's fine to take a break and it's fine to live outside of like, I think we have a pressure to be like the most aware. Maybe this is just a pressure I put on myself. Maybe I'm just being revealing now, but like, I think that it, it's hard for me not to want to know everything because for a long time, I thought that that was like the only value that I brought to things is that I just like knew a lot or could speak a lot. And uh, so I had a hard time like uncoupling, like, no, I can actually just like be there and like, that's enough from everything. So, um, but in, you know, traditional me fashion, I can't just watch something and then let it alone. And this is something that happens to me with like most documentaries. I really need to start understanding this about myself on a much deeper level. I'm never going to be able to just watch a documentary and then be like, okay, I think I learned enough about that subject. Like, this has been a thing for a long time, but I can remember very specifically after Blackfish came out, I read the book that like inspired the documentary filmmaker. It's really good. It's called Death at SeaWorld. It doesn't talk a lot about the death at SeaWorld. Thank I mean, it does, but like, thankfully, most of the book is actually just about like orcas. So I recommend it. If you ever, if you're in New York and you want to borrow it, let me know. It's a fucking good hardcover. Anyway, so I just, I am not somebody who ever watches one thing and then like, moves on. Um, it, it was like, I don't know. I feel like I'm an over-preparer. I like to know as much information as possible and then like deduce my own thoughts. And so I did that this week with Woodstock, um, which is something that I don't think I ever thought much about before. I obviously knew about it. I think I don't I'm try like, ooh, okay, let's see. Can I remember like the first time I learned about it? I feel like it was definitely like elementary or middle school. And I I don't think Woodstock 99 like didn't enter my consciousness. I was seven years old when Woodstock 99 happened. I think I probably watched the MTV Movie Awards that year or VMAs that year because I watched the VMAs from 1997 onward <laughs> because I had an older cousin that lived with us and she watched them every year. And so I think it was 1997. I have a very distinct memory of P. Diddy, then known as Puffy, descending from the ceiling in like a loop toe kind of catch thing. And he got on stage and he couldn't get his toe out of the 
the brace that he had like to come down from the ceiling on and he was hopping around the stage and we had that thing on VHS for years and I searched the internet for it. I searched for like a few clips occasionally just to see if they've like come up anywhere again and that VMAs clip is one of them and I don't think anybody else remembers that this happened so I just want to keep it in the public consciousness through official record. But the VMAs were prime viewing and MTV MTV comes back again I know that I did like a music festival episode a few weeks ago so I do want to acknowledge that I swear I think I'm just like I might be on a musical festival kind of kick right now the MTV of it all I really wasn't like going into this with like oh yeah I still want to dissect MTV's relationship to pop culture and how it influenced things one way or the other Um, I would say that Woodstock 99 was kind of like the heyday of MTV before we got like reality show MTV because that happened in like 2004 or 5. So the real world was happening at this point with so... Okay, so this is based on the Netflix documentary, um, mostly. That's what like sparked my interest in this was I was just looking for something to watch and that looked interesting. I What I knew about the 1999 Woodstock... Um, from the VMAs actually is that ad rock from the Beastie Boys when they won an award they went up and he said like hey there was a bunch of sexual assault that happened at this concert and it's not cool and you need to protect women and like we all need to do a better job of respecting each other and that always really struck me and then uh, when the punk singer came out which is a documentary about Kathleen Hanna um, which in which it's like really revealing um, about her struggles with like Lyme disease and things like that. It's really good. Doc- I, I think it's a good documentary. I would recommend it. Ad Rock is in that. And they talk about how they got together and how when she met him, she was like, ugh, like girls to do my dishes, girls to do the laundry. And he was like, I'm sorry. And so like, I think that uh, their relationship is a really beautiful example of like personal growth through being held accountable by somebody that you want to seem cool to. Like Adrock was like, oh, fuck, I really like this girl. Like, I want her to like me. I guess I should start respecting women really hardcore. And I know that there was other stuff going into that. And I'm just glad that like I love the BC boys. And so I'm really glad that they did respect women. And it's the same thing. Like Kathleen Hanna is who spray painted Kurt smells like teen spirit on the wall. Like it's. Kurt really respected women. I think like the lack of respect for women is something we're really going to get into in the 99 Woodstock. And um, it's there from the beginning. And yeah, so I want to just, I've already been talking for a while, but hopefully this is speeding right along because it is in my brain. So I want to talk about uh, the Netflix documentary and it's kind of like things that it, it got right and things that made my blood boil when they didn't discuss them in any capacity that was appropriate. And so I watched that. I then watched an HBO documentary. I read a bunch of articles. I went back in time and tried to find a bunch of footage and articles from when it happened because I was really interested in reading about how they were reporting on what was going on the days after the festival. So there's a few Washington Post articles. I'll link to stuff. I, I think I kept most of my like bibliography. So um, Woodstock 99, let's set the stage. It is 30 years after the original Woodstock. The original Woodstock is, I let's just, okay, yeah, maybe let's go chronologically. The original Woodstock is a fucking miracle. And I think everybody who was there knew that. And I think it gets remembered as a miracle. And I think it should be remembered as a miracle. It's a miracle of the human spirit and kindness and generosity to each other. And I think that um, obviously the the story that got immortalized was the one told in the Three Days of Peace and Love documentary. 
And I watched the director's cut of that one, which is very long and mostly music performances. But if you're interested in watching that, I think it's good. I think it's interesting. It shows a lot of the townsfolk and how they were like, no, these people seem really nice. We're just worried about getting them fed. Um, But, you know, it's pointed out in other media that I've now watched about it that, like, the documentary never really goes into the fact that, like, 12 food stalls were set on fire in 1969. Um, There were people who were there who were not happy about the conditions of the place that they were being kept in. And, like, what gets remembered is, like, oh, we didn't plan for this many people to show up. But they basically ran out of time. They were like, can we build the stage or can we build a... You have to pick at a certain point, like, fence or stage. And also, so Michael Lang is the guy who is, like, the original Woodstock guy. He's the one who put it all together. He had been a promoter for a few years. And he, earlier that year, had done one in Miami and it didn't go well. It is, it's wild to watch old footage of him because he truly has the same attitude his entire life. And there are people around him who are like, well, he's just not going to get flustered. That's just like not what Michael's going to do. And it's like, no, I think he's like got a sensitivity chip missing vibes. Like it's very like, is he aware of what's happening and what he's causing and the danger that he's putting a lot of people in? Because like, Let's put it this way. The original Woodstock should have ended miserably. And I think the fact that it didn't is really a story of the resilience of like the peace and love vibes and also the communes that were there. Because like when you break down the people who saved Woodstock were the people who knew how to make food from rolled grains and shit to put in cups so that people were eating and making egg salad and scoop it. Like it was all communes. And I think it's funny that communes haven't made a bigger comeback um, the the story of Woodstock 99 is also like the story of how Reagan poisoned America with individualism and really made everybody separate. And I think that now we have a lot of people who like want to live an alternative lifestyle and are like, I want to have low impact. I want to farm my own shit. And they are all living on their own, <laughs> like in vans or in tiny houses. And like, I just don't see the same like communal spirit. And it's just really interesting because even the towns that were conservative, that didn't want Woodstock there, that kicked them out, which happened like multiple times, um, the people still saw each other as people. And I think it was like, oh, the young folks are coming to do this. And like the traffic that was caused is wild. I went and found... <laughs> This has always confused me. I was always like, okay, so people just abandoned their cars and then walked however long to get to the place and caused all this chaos. When did they go get their cars? Like, how did that work? When did the traffic actually clear? And I read an account of one woman who was like, yeah, after the thing, we actually couldn't find our keys. That was a big thing. Any picture of people searching for something at Woodstock, I just now assume it was their keys because everybody was losing their keys, apparently. And it's really, you know, it's lovely. They're making announcements from the stage about calling people's dad and, you know, at the motel. And it's just like nobody had cell phones and nobody had cell phones in 99 either. So this feels like a completely different reality that these people are living in because they couldn't contact each other. And I know 1969, it's like obvious that that couldn't happen. So it's always amazed me that more cars didn't just get fully abandoned. But anyway, her her like posse like left. And then two weeks later, they went and got their car and their car was just still there. 
with dozens of other cars like this it, it's funny because we talk about it like three days but like this impacted the town for so long so you know the first one also didn't have enough toilets they talk about how they tried to figure out how many toilets they would need there's like a really I really enjoyed this other documentary that's not it's a newer one it's called I think Woodstock three days that changed the world and it's just archival footage that is so truly beautiful like film is incredible so it's really beautifully shot and it just has a bunch of voiceovers and that was probably my favorite documentary I watched so I I could recommend one it's that I think it's free on Amazon until the end of the month so um you got two weeks I'd recommend if you're looking for like a pretty like chill um one it's interesting but they talk about how they were trying to figure out the bathroom logistics and what they did was they went to like a bunch of major venues and with a stopwatch and counted how many stalls they had and counted how long it took people to go in and out of them and then when the guy ran the initial calculations he basically realized that there was no physical way that he could get that many porta potties because based on the amount of people that were coming and the amount of porta potties in existence it just wasn't going to happen and this is a lesson that they didn't learn for the next one which is fascinating um but woodstock 69 importantly took place on a farm in a big field so i'm sure people were pissing and shitting in the woods or the surrounding areas and i don't want to know what was in that mud because i know it was in the mud at 99 and it wasn't mud michael lang got away with a very poorly designed festival the first time around he just literally had a miracle happen where like the weather was decent enough and the rain didn't wipe out everything or cause like major electricity surges because they were worried the entire time it was raining that somebody was going to get electrified and die and there was bad shit that happened at the first woodstock people say that like, it always gets remembered like in a much more positive light than the people there necessarily experienced but i do think they all felt connected and like they were doing something bigger than themselves and there was clearly care for each other and i think that that is something that was present in the 60s that is just so not present in the 90s from the very conception of it it is a capitalistic venture and i think that it really does highlight like the hippie to yuppie pipeline that happened where people in the 60s who genuinely believe this shit really went on to like embrace full capitalism in the next 30 years of their life because that was the thing of the original Woodstock a bunch of people realized like all of these people are there whether we like it or not so we can either let them starve have medical emergencies do all this shit or we can med back in like helicopter stuff and people are like complaining because the helicopters are so loud over the music that they're trying to listen to and it's like hey buddy if you want to make sure that nobody's going to die in the next 24 hours it's okay you cannot hear the song for like five fucking minutes so the please force and the fact that they just hired like a commune to be fucking security and their way of asking people was just like hey please don't do that please do this instead it's just like very gentle i think there was a lot of care of each other communes showing up and taking care of each other and like people doing very kind of soft drugs like acid is not a super hard drug and they're warning people about like there's some weird acid the brown acid like don't try it or if you do take half a tab uh if you want to like we're not here to like yuck your yum like it's wild but um it's soft drugs it's weed i mean like weed is just like weed is so gentle and i know that like i think that because we live in extremes now that weed has become like accepted as a mainstream thing there's like two thoughts of there's two schools of thought around weed that like i don't subscribe to either of them and one is weed is completely harmless nobody can get addicted to it weed is just a plant and it's a beautiful plant and you should be able to smoke it all day in any context and it only makes you smarter and better that's just like not true. Like it's gentle drugs. <laughs> They're out in the fields. There's people skinny dipping in water. They're in nature. And then 
1999, these motherfuckers are like, yeah, let's get on that abandoned military air force base. It's hot tarmac. It's there's no tree in sight. This is going to be exactly like Woodstock 1969. But 30 years later, what do you mean we only booked three women for the entire weekend out of hundreds of bands and then smattered them to play one each day? It is so I just want to up top talk about the misogyny of Woodstock 99, it started from the top. The three women who performed at Woodstock 99 were all solo acts. And it was Cheryl Crow, Alanis Morissette, and Jewel. And the other headliners, none of them were headliners. And the other headliners at this concert were Corn and Limp Biscuit and, and Megadeth. Like, it's just like, it's not. It's so not the same vibe. And they were they were like, oh, yeah, we booked them for the softer rock people. And like, honestly, it is it is wild in the Netflix documentary. They have one of the the guys who was there who was younger, who was like, do you guys realize that you're not booking bands that like are just like the rock bands of today? Like you're booking like new metal bands like metallic. It's wild that they had like. Just, I don't think they understood, like, the, the the music that they were bringing and the energy that that music brought with it was going to be very different. And I think they could have embraced that, right? Like, OzFest was happening at this point. Like, they could have had, like, a new metal festival and called it Woodstock 99 and been like, this is what the youth are listening to now. This is what they're connecting with. This is their um, energy. It's not peace and love. It's rage against the machine, which, who literally played. And um, that would have been fine. It would have been hilarious in contrast to the capitalistic nightmare that was Woodstock 99. But like they really wanted to make money in 69. They were not happy that they couldn't finish the fence. They were told you can finish the fence or the stage. And they said, well, if we don't have a stage, we don't have a thing. So I guess we'll finish the stage. But they were tight ass motherfuckers. They wanted to get paid back for this. They wanted to make money. And people were price gouging at the original Woodstock. Hot dogs were like a dollar when like usually they'd be 25 cents. And I didn't look up that inflation, but I'm sure that was stupid fucking high. And that's why somebody said 12 fucking food booths on fire and that created a whole other problem but we just focus on the positives and so that narrative got pushed around that it wasn't that they like you know something bad happened to the food vendors it was that there just wasn't enough food and both things were true because they weren't expecting half a million people to show up to the first one so anyway in, in 1999 they had their assholes fully fucking clenched in trying to just make sure that people got in who had tickets they built a 12 foot wall around the entire perimeter and then ironically called it the peace wall and they had the peace force instead of the please force and like the peace force was just a bunch of dudes in t-shirts who were told how to pass a test about security and hand it 500 bucks and a bunch of them didn't know what they were doing and security at an event this large is obviously like very very important and the fact that it was just treated as kind of like an afterthought seemingly is just incredibly negligent and um, these men should have absolutely been in jail um, for just all of the crimes that they committed. But somehow they got away with it. And I wonder why that is. Um, so they're at an Air Force base location. They said they chose it because there was already infrastructure there that they had had to build in the past. It did not go from Woodstock 69 to 99. There were a few other failed attempts in the middle. 94, they talk about a little bit. And it was like outside, but it rained for three days straight. And it was just a river of mud. And nobody was happy uh, because I don't think a lot, I don't, I think a lot of music festivals kind of fucking suck. Like, I don't think I talked about this with the fire festival or like I didn't go into detail with it. But I've been to one and it was awful. The campsite was like two miles away 
from the thing and we had to walk along a main road. It was tarmac. And so it was really fucking hot during the day and during the morning. And then you'd have to stay over at like the, the, the stage side the entire day because you didn't want to walk two miles fucking back to your tent. Um, and we had phones, but there was like very little service and your phone would die all day. And the water lines were always super long, but at least there was a ton of water and like it was ice fucking cold. But the food was all $10. And I think like bottled water was definitely like five or $6. And beer was like $9. Like for Bud Light in a can, it was $9. Um, in 1999, it was, I think, 150 for a ticket, which is 240 in today's money. I think I paid like $400 to go to Firefly. Um, and it's obviously a very different experience, whatever, but like that's still like the festival culture that has bloomed in the years since is really incredible when like it probably should have ended with this one. So they got this location. It's in Rome, New York. The only other thing I know about Rome, New York is that's where Emma Willard boarding school is. Water was expensive. So it was $4 a bottle. I looked that up. I think that's $7 in today's money, like seven twenty-five or something, which is ridiculous for a water bottle. It wouldn't be shocking prices, I think now at a music festival because like they are something that people know costs a lot of money but like this was the first time and like uh, there's varying stories but I tend to believe the people who they got who were there um, they say that their water was taken away from them water bottles things like that people were in, at Woodstock 99 people were bathing in the communal water things people eventually broke the water lines which made all of the water mix with sewage waste because the sewage from the porta potties were overflowing because they once again did not have enough porta potties because that seems to be a hallmark of Woodstock and they blame it on like the sanitation people didn't do a good enough job but like it really feels like they just subcontracted out all this work and then like did nothing to follow up and then we're like we did a great job huh like the entire time it's really wild how delusional these guys are and that's the guys I'm referring to are Michael Lang who's the original Woodstock guy and John Schur who's a promoter and who is my arch nemesis he's had some of the most disgusting things about rape victims that I've ever fucking heard a person say he and Michael Lang are allergic to accountability it's absolutely incredible to watch a bunch of white dudes point the finger at each other in this documentary because no Nobody is willing to take a single ounce of responsibility for like, yeah, we should have had more porta potties. Yeah, we shouldn't have done it on an Air Force base. Yeah, we shouldn't have like we should have had a better water system because at one point they go in and they test the water and there was no water that wasn't contaminated with fecal matter by the end of the weekend. So people were getting trench foot and trench mouth and the showers were unusable. The porta potties were overflowing unusable. It was really hot weather. And usually if there's grass and trees, that 80 90 degree weather it can be absorbed a little bit but this was bodies next to each other on black tarmac and the two stages that were in operation were a mile apart so, so the organizers say three quarters of a mile and then some people say two miles apart and I believe both of them like in some ways like I'm sure there is one path but they had to walk along a road to get there so most people who couldn't deal with like the outside heat went to these hangers during the day because they had like an emerging artist hanger and then they had a rave hanger that went all night because the drugs went from soft hippie LSD weed vibes to um, ecstasy real quick. And basically what everybody said is like the guys who were checking your bags would take your chairs, they would take your food and your water because they didn't want any outside food or water um, and so that you had to buy it. But if you handed them some money, they'd look the other way for drugs, <laughs> which like, um, so it was, you couldn't walk back to your tents either. This is something that I found out through 
like uh, watching some TikToks about it because because the Netflix thing came out, it was like, I bet some people who went are on TikTok and telling their stories. And of course they are because people love attention. Um, and this one girl was talking about how when she got separated from her friends at the med tent, she went to the med tent for like hyperthermia and they were like, you should call your parents and have them come pick you up. And she was like, that's not going to happen. Like, they're not going to be able to drive here. I don't live nearby. And they're going to just then be in a panic all weekend, which I was like, that's probably fucking true. This is before cell phones. So people were just like leaving notes around being like at this like information center. Um, so she eventually figured out how to get back to her tent, which she only figured out through like some color coordinated buses because they had only been there for like 20 minutes before they had headed over to the stages. And then she gotten separated from everybody because it was really easy to lose people in that big of a crowd. And so otherwise she was like, I, I don't know that how I would have gotten home if I wasn't able to just like figure out where my fucking tent was. And thankfully it wasn't dark yet. And I was just like, this is a nightmare. Like that is a logistical nightmare. It made me so nervous just to hear about. So it wasn't like walkable back to your tent. So you had to take these buses. And so like that was a big pain in the ass. There were no cell phones. Trash was overflowing. And people were also like the weird vibes of 1999 is that some people were like, yeah, peace and love and doing like trash drum circles. But also I think because everybody had these plastic water bottles, there was just a ton of fucking litter. And so one of the original Woodstock photographers was interviewed and she was there and she was like, oh, oh, this is going to this is going to go badly because there's so much trash. She gets pretty woo woo, but I think she really led me to what I came away with from a as a final thesis for why I think the Woodstock 69 worked out in 99 didn't in such stark contrastable ways is she was like, maybe this kid, she's being interviewed uh, like on the premises. And she's like, maybe these kids just need more love. Maybe they haven't been loved yet, but she was dry. And then some in the background, people are like knocking over an art exhibition that she then goes and yells at them about. But at one point she's on a on an ATV handing out um trash and saying like do your part clean up around your area like we're all in this together and she said that one of the kid like threw it back in her face and said like I paid 150 bucks to be here you clean it up and it's like that's the individualism that poisoned America in the in between is like people in 69 understood like we're all in this together we're only going to get through it if we're like nice to each other and like here's a blanket let's you know like let's take care of each other a little bit and the entitled white boys that went to Woodstock 99 were not that type of person. So they were doomed before they even started because of all the greed. They allowed vendors exclusive pricing, not of toilets, water, shade for the people. Security is really important and they barely bothered. The drugs were harsher. And um, because people could hang out in that rave hangar all night, some people really did like go all night. Like people were not taking care of themselves. I can't think of something worse than standing outside in like 90 something degree weather all day with no shade, moving around with like a hundred thousand other bodies around you so hot and then taking ecstasy and then going to a rave all night i don't think there a more dehydrated person has ever existed than people who did that the music was not in the same vein so like there was no peace and love vibes some people really tried to like wedge in a lot of woodstock 69 kind of moments like they brought out like they brought out the guitars from the doors wyclef john did a Jimi hendrix tribute it was just it, like it was not well received and what was so interesting is that i realized in 1999 there was no nostalgia culture yet we were still very firmly in like in the future and i think futurism has really like taken a back seat to nostalgia because nostalgia is easier to market and we don't know what's going to happen in the future and a lot of it looks like honestly it looks kind of stupid now it looks like retro which is why i think like 
you know, the cyber truck and all of that. Like everything just looks like a video game because we imagine the future a lot in spaces that you can move around in, in movies and in things, but we don't do it, I think, as a culture as much. We're not so focused on, the, you know, uh, maybe we are now. I don't know. But it just feels like nostalgia culture is so marketable and so easy to market because everybody has the same pool of references. It's really easy to just like slap a meme on a thing and, and sell it back to us now. Um, but in 1999, people like who were at that Woodstock did not care about the first Woodstock. They did not know who played. They did not know the vibes. They were not watching the documentaries. These were like the footage is so funny of these guys. Like it's not funny. Actually, the footage is fucking horrifying. The footage. OK, so the reason that I am like mad about the Netflix documentary is because they do not talk about the sexual assault that happened at Woodstock 99. So like we're about to get into it. Um but basically, throughout the entire documentary, they are showing assault because they continuously show girls getting groped, molested, and like it is wild how little they comment on it. It is basically regulated to the last five minutes. They're like, yeah, some women were raped and and that's bad. But then John Schur, my mortal enemy, who I will, it is on site if I ever see that man, is like, yeah, there were some rapes, but I don't know that it was a different amount than a city with 250,000 people. And also you have to remember that a lot of the women were walking around naked, so I don't know what they expected. And it's like, there so 1999 is like the height of like girls gone wild culture i think like beer commercial girls were so big at the time pam anderson was one of the hottest women in america and she was discovered because she was wearing like a beer tank top at a hockey game like we were not into intellectual women we wanted like it was a very specific type of woman that became very popular at that time and it was stifler's mom and it was american pie and it was so rape culture was at an all-time high it feels like at that time like we really we didn't have the words for it so it was even grosser like i think that we haven't really like there's so much in, in sexuality that we've taken out of um, mainstream culture like we don't have sex scenes in movies anymore Mo- some of that is just because Disney doesn't do anything that's not super family friendly and they now make most of the movies that get released um, indie movies are doing great things but you know you gotta seek those out um, but like we don't get rom-coms like there's just a lot of like stuff in culture that like it culture I think has moved in a much more puritanical way and I think that's interesting but I think in 1999 we were at the height of kind of like gross gross culture where like women didn't have a thing that they could be that wouldn't be ridiculed. And I think that that's still, that's still true in so many ways. There was that TikTok thing that went around like last year that was like, name something that a woman can like that she won't be made fun of for. And it's like nothing. Like, of course not. Of course nothing. Because I don't know, at some point as a culture, we decided that women have no like internal lives that are worth hearing about or investigating. And I don't understand that. But it's, I don't know, I just, it bums me out when people are like, can men and women be friends? And I'm like, yeah, if if everybody sees each other as like intellectually stimulating and like a person, anybody can be friends with anybody. It's actually really important that we have friends of all genders. And like, it's just not fair that like women don't get to have fun. Like dudes get to wander around with their shirts off all day and nobody's, you know, like women were naked at Woodstock 69 and they're were rapes reported at Woodstock 69, but nowhere near the amount of sexual assault that was happening and filmed. And like there was pay-per-view cameras there and MTV cameras there. And there is the most like horrific footage of this girl 
and she's got her top off and there's like guys surrounding her and they're kind of crushing in on her and it's it's a really claustrophobic clip and it's really fucking upsetting and the the reporter is like whoa guys back up you know like let her breathe you're getting kind of scary here and he's trying to like you know calm the energy down but like that really feels like the energy the whole time there's the the details of what happened in the mosh pit and the fact that women were being penetrated with foreign objects and just like they they were fearing for their lives they thought they were going to die it was multiple people it was like really horrific but throughout the documentary they're showing women crowd surfing as they're being groped and they're showing the pay-per-view footage of these creepy camera guys who were really just there to get women's tits on camera like it was the height of like hooters culture and like it just it boobs were so big they were so big they were uh they were just so prevalent in a way that I just don't it's so like alarming to see I don't think that's true anymore and like MTV talks about they have a lot of MTV BJ's comment on it because they were there and they were terrified of the the youth in front of them and they were saying like MTV was really going through a weird growing pains because TRL had both Limp Biscuit and the Backstreet Boys on and overnight MTV kind of went after the teenage demographic because that's who was buying stuff see the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats movie for more information on exactly why and it's it's kind of wild to see that tension play out live at one point they literally have like they make like little idols of the Backstreet Boys on stage have somebody go up there with a bat and like hit them and it's okay so back to the sexual assault not to get off topic here it's really horrific. They actually describe like finding a rape victim in the back of the van that's driven into Moby, not into Moby set, into Fatboy Slim's set in the middle of the hangar. And like the the guy being interviewed is the guy who discovered the rape victim who was underage in the back of the van. And he is clearly still very haunted by what happened. And I think that it's one of the moments of like real humanity that you see around the subject at all. And I don't, I don't know that Fatboy Slim like, knew at the time that that happened um and I don't know who I don't know how many people in that hangar knew what had happened and like it's horrific and I you know it's horrific for that girl if everybody knew and it's it's just it's so bad but I don't know that the guy was ever charged and like that's also horrific and it just it makes it so that everybody there was kind of complicit and isn't that so awful and people should have just been able to enjoy the music and the only people who really did anything or stood up for the girls were bands on stage and so there there's like literally the offspring is there and he is they don't show this in the um netflix but he's he calls out like I'm seeing girls go through the crowd and just because a girl's got her top off like doesn't give you the permission to grope them and like it's like he's he's calling out the people and there, there's a few other clips of like dudes being like hey don't be crazy and then Kid Rock is fucking disgusting and calls Monica Lewis. it's like it's it's horrific how terrible a person Kid Rock is and how much like people are like yeah about him at the thing the corn front man is like the voice of reason and he's like hey you know girls should be able to have fun same as dudes and it's wild that like that alone is feels revolutionary in these documentaries because it's just a man being like hey actually it's not up to women to protect themselves from rape it's up to men to not rape them so it just it's it's so upsetting and the fact that nothing was really ever confronted about it and i think we really could have confronted rape culture in that moment and i think mtv could have done something really incredible because like they had people that were scared they had they had people that were talking about the dangers of 99 and like we just didn't think 
that women were people and so we didn't think that people would care about those stories and so it was women who were helping other women and there were four i think reported rapes to the state after woodstock 99 but there was a website that went up where it was like hey if something happened to you we want to connect you with other survivors and they got hundreds of stories and so it's like of course it's not four because that feels like the statistics of probably what's true in the outside world too of like four for every 500 and four get reported and it's just like it's so upsetting that throughout the entire movie they are re-exploiting the women who were exploited by those cameramen originally right like we did not need the footage that they chose there's other footage they could have cut around if they wanted to show that because they're still getting off on the scandalousness they're still using these women's bodies as entertainment and then they're turning around and being like isn't it horrible that we use these women's bodies as entertainment and then the men who were in charge of keeping those women safe are like the fucking sluts couldn't keep their tops on and it's like michael lang was not the fucking point like it is it is horrific to hear them, even 30 years later, just not be able to take responsibility. They had a responsibility to keep everyone safe, and they failed across the board. And we never held them accountable because we don't hold people accountable for actual crimes. We hold them accountable for petty little bullshit crimes that don't actually matter. These people had 250,000 people's lives in their hands, and they were negligent with every single one of them, and nobody ever held them accountable for it. And at the end, they kept lying and saying that it was just a few people who set fires. Because that's the thing about what's... So, like, what's stuck 99 goes from, like, overflowing with trash, overflowing with literal poop mud everywhere, overflow like, no water, it's hot, everybody's pissed off, Limp Biscuit gets up, like, Corn's set is nuts. Like, the footage of it is wild to see. People were moving as one big amoeba and um the sound you can literally see how the sound was traveling because you see like the wave of people reacting to the sound and like um as somebody who felt very crushed at the childish gambino set at firefly in 2014 my actual nightmare my actual fucking nightmare i will say though corn goes hard and i know a lot more corn songs than i thought i did i was really surprised the entire time i kept being like oh this is this song like metal was so like that new metal type was so fucking popular for a while um, Limp Biscuit gets out there and like Fred Durst gets a lot of heat as he should. He went out there and was purposefully inflammatory because Fred Durst is a fucking asshole. And we all knew that. And he saw the behavior and he went like, this is fucking cool. I am in charge of so many people right now. And he gives like a speech. <laughs> like, it's not funny. People got hurt. Um, but it is absolutely bananas that he... He gets blamed in for things with Woodstock '99 that he is not responsible for, and I, I, you know, that's fine. I can, I can admit, I can admit that Fred Durst is not the cause of what happened, but he is one of the causes. And so he gives this speech that's like, when this song kicks in, you fucking kick in, like take all that negative energy and just let it out. And then it's a song called Give Me Something a Break. Like it is, they booked a band with a song called Give Me Something a Break. I'm not trying to say that they didn't pay for Limp Biscuit and get Limp Biscuit. It's just like Fred Durst is a maniac and it is, um, incredible that more people didn't get hurt but what's really funny about his speech and made me laugh is in the middle he's like you got girl problems you got boy problems you got parent problems you got boss problems and I just think that like bands are so geared towards teenage fans like all the time that it just becomes very funny as you get older that you're like why do all these song lyrics mention asking my parents for permission um and like I don't know I always think about like the amount 
of people who have to make songs that mention like high school or leave sneaking out of the house. And it's like, I, I didn't fucking think about any of that when I was 24. Like it's just, it feels very phony. And I find it funny that he was like, you got parent problems. <laughs> like you let's break stuff. Um, and he points out that he loves this plywood crowd surfing. The plywood had been ripped off of the sound tower that had to be evacuated because people were like coming over the walls like zombies and like people were genuinely very worried. There was somebody's like people's legs got broken. Multiple rapes happened during the set. Fred Durst is a fucking asshole. And he gets off stage and like somebody asks him like a pretty like generic question of like how was it out there you know like people were going nuts um and took the plywood off and he's like oh man it's not our fault like he immediately starts denying that he has any kind of responsibility to anyone and it's like you do you're the act you're the person on stage you have the most responsibility of anyone to the crowd and to say like hey chill out but he didn't want to do that he liked the energy he was getting he's a chaos monster and like fred durst is a monster of a person like that his behavior speaks for itself but it's wild to see so many men, one right after the other, just be like, that's not my responsibility. I don't, I am not in charge of that. I don't have to care about that. Nobody's making me care about that. And I think that that's what really hit home for me is just that there was a dearth of care and of love. And I think people look at, like, Cheryl Crow talks about the guys who, like, the audience, because that's the thing, any woman who was on stage for even a second, all of the crowd started chanting, show your tits. Like, it was disgusting. And Cheryl Crow sums up the crowd as I'm a white, young, upper middle class guy who's been given everything, but I'm angry and I don't know why I'm angry. And I was like, oh, that still describes it, doesn't it? Like all of these dudes were very like suburban ennui, give me metal to give me a personality. Like I need to let my anger out, but I'm angry at what? And it's like the machine, my boss. And it's like, okay, you're mad at the like, let's take it a step beyond that. You're mad at the trappings of capitalism. You're mad that we've been separated from each other into these little houses that we have to drive to and from because the infrastructure of suburbia is purposefully antagonistic to pedestrians in order to make us buy more cars because it was developed by car makers in order to sell more cars basically um and also to redline and also to keep white supremacy happening and like suburbia is just truly like when you trace it back it's bad and probably not the way people were supposed to live and i understand that like rural communities exist and have existed but suburbia is different from rural communities so anyway there are so many people who made so many decisions and never calculated in the vibe of the crowd, which was angry and pissed off and give me something to break. And I don't know why I'm angry. And I think that I don't know why is really like an it's it turns up the anger even more because it's so frustrating to not know why you feel something. I think that's why toddlers break down a lot. And I think that, that is the you know emotional intelligence level that I, I want to say most of these dudes were operating at because I really don't think we talked about like being able to talk about your feelings in the 90s and all of them were raised by like silent generation traumatized boomers um and so you know it's and they had a bunch of ennui and they didn't know what they were angry at and so like they were staying until day three because they had spent all this money and sunk cost fallacy and it's a lawless land and i bet some of them were kind of having fun because it's like drugs were very open and i think that's like a unique situation for a lot of people and you know there there was a concert going on but the second i can't take a shit we're out i'm so sorry we're bailing like i (laughs) i am um absolutely not somebody who will stay in an uncomfortable situation if I could just leave. I will. I don't mind. If if it's too hot and I bought tickets to a comedy show, I'm not going to that comedy show. If I'm going to be miserable the entire time I'm there, I will just happily throw out that $20. I understand that this was $240, but the day I wake up and there is not a, a clean area for me to take a shit in, I'm gone. 
Um, and I will take everybody with me. So I don't know. I think it really points out the destructiveness of male violence and misogyny. But basically, so I feel like uh, if you don't know about Woodstock 99, we're now 45 minutes in and I still have not described how the weekend happened. So day one, corn happens and corn had an incredible set and then Bush came. There's a really good cut where it's like, yeah, I don't know how he was going to follow us. And then it like smash cuts to the lead singer of Bush, whose name I think was like Gavin DeGraw or like something very close to the other Gavin DeGraw who's famous. Um, And it's like his eyes are filled with tears. (laughs) Like He is so scared of this fucking crowd. But they did a good job. Um, And then day two, um, Limp Bizkit happens. There's like a few. This is only on one stage that this is all happening. Like they're not very good in any of these documentaries about talking about like which stage which was on. And like the crowd just looks so bonkers that it really is like an overwhelming shot to just look at. Like it, you can feel how gross it was there. Um, so day two ends. Day three it closes. And at that point, water was, I think, up to like $12 a bottle. So people were super dehydrated. They hadn't been able to bathe. Their tents were covered in like sewage mud that was seeping into everything. People were fucking miserable. They spend all day there. They think that there's going to be like a surprise guest. Like that starts becoming a rumor going around the camp. And and then the Red Hot Chili Peppers are closing out the set. And um, a nonprofit who was there because 1999 was also the year of the Combine shooting, which gets remembered as a school shooting and not what it actually was, which was the school shooting was supposed to be just the beginning of the terrorist attack that those boys had planned throughout the entire town. And they based it on Timothy McVeigh and they were big fans of the Oklahoma City bombing and they had pipe bombs that were built all around town and Columbine was supposed to be a terrorist attack. It was not supposed to be a school shooting. It gets remembered as a school shooting and I think that that did a detriment to all future school shootings because all future school shootings also had to do with a lot of male violence and the play out of misogyny. It Those boys were not bullied. Like looking into the actual, I think like Columbine is one of those things that like people really should learn more about in and like what happened to that community, how they were exploited, she said yes story being absolute bullshit but not bullshit because a different girl said it but she wasn't killed and it's it's just really tragic what happened and it's tragic that we misremember it and that we um have any kind of sympathy for like what happened without really understanding what was going on and this narrative that they were just like two bullied boys is just like completely wrong and it's really alarming that that's how it gets remembered and so like you know when Uvalde happened and it came out that his first victim, he tried to shoot his grandmother in the, or his mother in the face, a grandmother, um, who survived. But it's same thing with Sandy Hook. The first victim was a woman. Like it's, 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 <laughs> we should look at it is all I'm saying. And maybe we should admit that women are likely to get killed by domestic partners. And that's just like absolutely fucking terrifying that the men who are more, most likely to kill us, the ones who allegedly love us. <sighs> um, so being a woman's hard and you can't even go to a music festival. So the destructiveness of misogyny is just very present and the Red Hot Chili Peppers are playing and it's Columbine and they're trying to do um, a, a, like a candle vigil for Columbine at the end of the Red Hot Chili Peppers set. And I'm not saying that whoever came up with this, the nonprofit that was there to raise awareness about gun violence, did not have the best intentions. But literally handing kindling and flame to a bunch of pissed off people who are tired and hungry and covered in their own piss and shit uh, was probably the worst idea they ever had. And then somebody set fire to something and then the fire department is like, it's ground fire, it'll burn out, we're on tarmac, no worries, just leave it. 
And then the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Flea is naked this entire time, by the way. Flea is also one of the only men who said something about um, allowing women to just exist with their tits out. Or their clothes on, um, because many women went crowd serving with their clothes fully on. And there's no difference between going crowd serving with your clothes fully on and going with your um, with your top off. You deserve to be treated the exact same way. But to have your clothing forcibly removed from you is just another layer of assault. So, uh, of that assault, not of assault in general. And it, oh, what a terrifying thing to say out loud. Um, so... If Flea said something, but he's also butt-ass naked, so that's, you know, a move. And they go out, and for the closing number for their encore, they play Jimi Hendrix's Fire. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not saying it wasn't a good performance, boys, but I'm just saying. Um, and it, they, you know, they have a million excuses, and they're like, it wasn't a, it wasn't on purpose, and we weren't trying to say anything or make anything happen. They've even said in the years since that one of Jimi Hendrix's living family members was begging them to play that song. Which is why they did it. But either way, riots break out and people start lighting everything on fire. And then they pull down a tower and then they go to the vill- like the vendor's village and they start looting. And that's when they start ripping open ATMs with their bare hands. It is absolutely bonkers to witness. Um, one kid from that went to jail because eventually they call in state troopers and like employees of the place like barricaded themselves inside of like one of the things like it was really scary at the end and everything gets burned down they light a mercedes benz on fire there's a bunch of graffiti everywhere they're literally ripping open atms and the next day it just like it looks like carnage and that's exactly what it was yeah i mean like there have obviously been a lot of music festivals that have not gone well um altamont but it just, it's really alarming and scary that it, it gets remembered the way it does. And the Netflix documentary doesn't touch on the deaths that happened at all. The HBO one does a little bit in, in a haunting and really effective way. But it's just, it's weird that it that nobody is willing to take responsibility for what happened. Um, except some of the people who were like, I was trying to make people see it while it was happening, but nobody would listen to me. And I think this is what happens when you become a sycophant to an idea and a person. I think like Michael Lang clearly was really like trusted because everybody was like, well, he pulled off Woodstock. And it's like, no, a bunch of people around him made miracles happen. And he took all of the glory in culture for it. Like he gets remembered for the organization when the organization was the first thing that fell apart and actually was probably the thing that made it so bad in the first place you know if you if the advertising for your festival is the only thing that you did effectively but you didn't make any money off of the festival then i don't know maybe you didn't really do it that effectively like yeah he got like half a million people to come to upstate new york but like uh he almost like caused mass mayhem when they got there so maybe if he had been held accountable in 1969 he wouldn't have been able to commit more crimes in 1999 I think it's really indicative of the road we went down of women not having hobbies. I think there was a lot of like, well, women aren't here to listen to the music. They're here to entertain me. I'm allowed to see their bodies because that's what they provide for me and from the men who went. And it's just really scary. They were just people who wanted to listen to music and have a good time. And I just think that it's really a tragedy that so often the only people that are allowed to have a good and safe time are the men who are making it unsafe for everybody else around them. And I don't think we, as a culture, have figured out how to hold them responsible for that because it 
hasn't gone away. You know what I mean? Like we do have an awareness. We do have me too, but the backlash to me too is here and it is real and it is really fucking frightening because we haven't solved misogyny at all. And I think like, honestly, the feminism of the last like 15 years has been pretty fucking soft. And then the, the hard toothed feminism has been a brand of which I am not going to associate myself with. Cause I don't believe in like 99, like what's so annoying about radical feminism is like, I believe that we do need to have feminists on, you know, like any movement needs to have radical people, but radical feminism has actually just become shorthand for transphobic feminism. And I, that's not my type of feminism. And I just, I don't believe in gender essentialism being an important part of feminism. Uh, But I do believe that looking at all of the ways that women are treated poorly by society is important um and choice feminism is bullshit and like we our feminism really became like no it's okay for women to get boob jobs instead of like why do you feel so much pressure to like uphold patriarchal standards of beauty that are only benefiting you now as you're young and like you can only cling to that for so long and i don't know the you know maybe the reason that we all fear getting older is because we don't have like wonderful examples of people who are thrilled about it in media and i think that's why the housewives are important because it's the only group of 50 year old women who have gone through divorces who are on television regularly um and all of them have had work done and all of that but like it's still something um crowd psychology and sun cost fallacy is very evident throughout both i would say i think in 1969 it's easier to understand that they just wanted to be a part of something in 1999 you weren't being a part of something you were at like a mtv filmed thing that was banking on a nostalgia culture that wasn't there there was pay-per-view people have it on tape um it just it's You can't just say that people had a good time and absolve yourself of all the shit that went wrong. It doesn't matter if some people had a good time, if there were rape victims in the crowd among those people. Those people are traumatized by seeing what they saw. Um, The women who were raped are traumatized by that. And I don't mean to, you know, if they've moved on from that trauma, I wish them all the best. But seeing that man speak about discovering a rape victim in the back of the van was really disturbing um, because I think you can you can tell when a soul is still haunted by something that they've seen. And I think like seeing that lack of humanity really left like a lasting impression on that person and seeing an artist find out and then continue to play or, you know, like it's just, it's, it's really rough. And I think that there was a dearth of care. And I think that like the woo woo part of it all is that the original Woodstock really did understand that there isn't, love isn't finite. There's not a finite amount of love. If you give somebody a lot of love, it, it doesn't mean that there's less in the world to come back to you. I think it actually means there's more. I think love is exponential. I think it multiplies. I don't think it is subtractive. And I just like Woodstock 69 really was about a bunch of people coming together and being like, no, like we care about each other and we're going to care about each other on purpose and we're going to keep each other safe and we're going to do this and uh, we're going to smoke all this weed. (laughs) We're going to take this good acid and the fucking brown acid's a little weird. So make sure everybody knows before they take it. And I think that the individualism poisoning of Ronald Reagan in the 80s into the 90s is really evident. And all of these kids were so angry. They didn't know what they were angry at. And I think what they were angry at is just the lack of humanity that they were shown their entire lives. Because all anybody cared about for so long in society was the almighty dollar. And MTV is a perfect encapsulation of that, where it took things that people did love, but it sold it back to us and it tainted it and it made it bad and like... You know, can punk rock really exist on a record label? Like, I don't know, probably not. Like the actual ethos, not really. But like, 
uh, caring and you know all of that stuff that's fucking hard to do and I think that's the most punk thing of all and uh, like all of the guys who were interviewed are just like fucking little uh, to steal a quote from Bachelor they're just little bitch boys like it just it just it's so they're all so whiny and I know that you know the documentary is being selective but like I just didn't see a lot of people saying things that I was like wow they're really connected to their humanity in this moment and obviously we're only seeing edited bits and everything else, but the MTV VJs, I think, were a really interesting insight into how people were treating um, each other and MTV and pelting them with bottles and MTV didn't feel safe. And there was many, many times during the documentary that people talk about, like, I had to get out of there. And I think that that's just not something that um, you usually feel the urgency so much with, with fucking music festivals. Um so just a series of really bad decisions. But if if there's demonstrable care, people will reflect it back and reflect it on each other and care about each other. And there was a police force and communes giving out free food and the town of Bethel donating like millions and millions of eggs and the military coming in with medical supplies. And they said it out loud a lot on the megaphones in 69. We're feeding each other. We take care of each other. And it was deeply spiritual. And I think that um, spirituality is so tied to religion that during the a religious period that we're kind of in now and the rejection of the old, um, we've lost a lot of spirituality. And I think that like human energy is actually the most important thing and the vibes, <laughs> uh, really do matter. And it's, it's incredible to see a world before cell phones. Um, you know, like I think technology has advanced us so far and taken us back so much at the same time and all of this, but in the 30 years between these two, culture completely shifted and it was the same people who were originally like you know people who went to the original Woodstock like their kids could have easily been at 99 and like the difference in the vibe is just so stark and I think that it's a really interesting thing to look at in American history because I I don't think that things of comparable I've never heard of a comparable music fest you know, kind of thing to Woodstock happening anywhere else. I think it's a once in a generation. It's, you know, three days of defined a generation. Like it's everything that everybody's ever talked about being so magical. And I think that's really beautiful. But um, what happened in those 30 years? And I'll tell you what happened. His name is Ronald Reagan. Um, and then Bush wasn't great either. And then Clinton was also not great. Um, we didn't have great leaders and a lot of the people who were in Congress, uh, after Watergate, uh, are still there now. So, um, you know, <laughs> that's why people stayed, people got addicted to power and they stayed in positions of power that they shouldn't have had in the first place that they probably got through means that, um, otherwise wouldn't have gotten them elected. Um, yeah. What else? I don't know. Documentaries are really fucking heavy recently. I don't know if it's just like, I've been watching a lot of them or what, but, um, the Netflix ones are so underwarned too. If you watch Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey, um, which if, you, if you're interested in the FLDS like church stuff, um, it is a very intense documentary, but I just want to give you a very graphic warning that at the end you do hear the rape of a 14-year-old girl, like you hear audio, and it's so fucking alarming that they did not give a, an additional warning before that happened. Um, and I've been haunted by it ever since. And I think that obviously there have been really important documentaries coming out, but I do feel a little bit like I 
feel an obligation to learn about the most horrendous crimes of humanity and then go out into the world and treat everybody with like a lot of like kindness and benefit of the doubt. And sometimes that's really not uh, contiguous with the experience I've just had. If I know every single thing about every single person who helped cover up for Jeffrey Epstein, it's really hard to go out into the world and expect the best from people. And I think that like, especially with sexual assault, women have to go into such graphic detail in order to be believed. And I'm just like, I don't want to watch women rip themselves open and bleed anymore on camera. I really don't. I don't want to read them doing it on Twitter. I just like, it's so fucking heartbreaking. And um, there's really important media that's really hard to listen to and really hard to watch. But I think like we all should do a really good job of taking care of ourselves and knowing our limits and not feeling obligated. Um, I know that like I I am not good at setting that limit for myself but I have found that sometimes like reading it can be less upsetting than listening to it or sometimes hearing it from a podcast can be the best way for me to absorb it um, I do wish that more documentaries had an ob- like put experts in the documentary like it's really not helpful to just have people say a bunch of shit and then have nobody give any context or follow up experts like is there a shortage of men with um you know elbow pads out there like I need historians I would love to see some because there have definitely been people who've written books and theses on Woodstock I would love to I would have loved one of them to show up in the 99 documentary and explain how it was different or what went so wrong or like get a sociology professor in there like there's so much that they could have done and I just think that having men say deplorable things and then kind of going in with this like oh give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves kind of attitude is like really not helpful because a lot of people, I really hope you can't hear that going. A lot of people don't have the context to critically think about the actions that they're witnessing. Um, and it's a responsibility of the documentary filmmaker to demonstrate that context. And when they don't, it's really annoying to me. And I think that that was really evident. Like recently, the Teal Swan documentary that came out on Hulu, there are no experts. It feels like a reality show about Teal Swan. But the document the uh, behind every great documentary is an even better podcast um the podcast about teal swan the name of which i cannot remember right now that is a much better look because he goes and interviews a bunch of fucking experts and then contrasts it with what she's saying so that we as the audience know exactly how wrong she is and i don't think that you have to tell people like this person's wrong this person's an idiot i think you can let those moments play for themselves but to let john sure say something so abhorrent about rape victims and then not follow it up with anybody saying that is the most horrific thing I have ever heard from somebody who was personally responsible for these women's safety was really jarring and really saddening and these men have never taken responsibility Michael Lang's dead now but he didn't take any responsibility before his death um, as far as I know and I think that living in denial was really bad for their souls this car does not seem to be moving so um, I'm gonna wrap it up here I've also been talking for over an hour um, I hope that this funky beat is being captured because it's what I'm grooving to um, on my way out. I don't I know I need to I need to end on a lighter note than how terrible humanity is sometimes. The Woodstock 69 is a fucking miracle, man. And I think it really does demonstrate just how like care um, really does get reflected back and all around. And it's a prism and not, you know, a vacuum. And um, I don't know that that makes sense. Mixed metaphors. Why not? 
Oh, okay. The Woodstock, but before Woodstock, Michael Lang produced a few music festivals, and one of them was at a racetrack and had a lot of the same problems as Woodstock '99. And the one at the racetrack was held in Miami in 1969. He had 30 years to learn his lesson. He didn't learn anything. It was held at a literal military industrial complex. It is so fucking funny. They had no sense of irony. The MTV of it all is really interesting. The entire HBO documentary, Mike uh, John Schur blames MTV. He's like MTV set the tone. They were all so negative about it. People had a really great time. The Netflix documentary also does not show some of the most alarming footage, which is that DMX was one of the first acts to play. And he has a song called My N-Words. And he had the crowd do call and response. So he's singing the song. And then a, a 250,000 white kids are shouting the N-Word back at him. And one of the music journalists points out like how horrific it would be if you were a person of color who went with your friends who you didn't think said that word or wouldn't say that word under any fucking circumstances in the first day they're doing that like (laughs) i'm sure there were many an awkward car ride home after woodstock 99 that's all i'm saying after firefly i had one of the best conversations about my body and living as a fat person that i've ever had with my two best friends that i went to that concert with so um shout out to them i still think about that conversation a lot um i think it was the best i've ever articulated a lot of the stuff and yeah um yeah i don't know Cheryl Crow was right. <laughs> um, Alanis Morissette and Jewel and Cheryl Crow were all very weird choices. And I think if there had been more women on the bill, they would have had a you know more varied crowd. And they really did not know what they were getting themselves into as far as the booking. But people tried to tell them, and it was it was a willing, um, it was an on purpose lack of judgment. It was not something that like was a true accident. They they didn't want to deal with what they had built and they never did apparently despite how many fucking documentaries they've been interviewed for i just think that the please force is so nice and i learned a lot about wavy gravy and the hog farm this week and now i'm just like oh communes sound great so more communes less uh less solo tiny houses and limited vans if you're subscribing to that life you probably would love a commune so meet up find each other build tiny houses near each other doesn't that sound cool more community. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. I hope I left it on a lighter note. Um, and, uh, yeah, I might have to edit out a lot of that car, but, um, follow me on social media if you'd like to. Um, I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm not great at like saying like, like, and subscribe, but like, and subscribe, uh, leave a five-star review. If you're listening to it on iTunes or whatever, that could be fun and helpful. If there's any topics that you'd like me to dive into, feel free to leave a comment or like email me or tweet at me or whatever. I would totally be down to like watch a documentary I haven't seen or talk about something like if there's something I have seen would love to get prompted to talk about it. It's been interesting doing this podcast and writing a thing a week. I feel like I'm kind of like, oh shit, I gotta like go out more and get more to write about because I'm kind of used to only coming up with one thing to really uh, deep dive into. But this last week I watched one documentary and it spiraled me out. And then I consumed something about Woodstock every single day, sometimes multiple things. And now I know way too much about it. And I hope I got all of my thoughts out in this hour um, because otherwise I'm going to be editing this and being like, I should have mentioned that. Um, (laughs) So anyway, I hope you have a great rest of your day, uh, evening, good night, wherever, whenever you're listening to this. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, see you next week. Bye.